<laughs> it's Halloween time. It's the Halloween times. Spook Central here at the Blockbuster Film School. I'm Alex Bonner, joined as always by your head of the Spooktacular Central, Mr. Nicholas Souter. Hey, super producer Brian Tapps, get your ass out of there. And that was Donald Pleasance, by the way. That was not a racist caricature of anybody. <laughs> no, that it was sounds horrible. It was pitch perfect Donald Pleasance. And uh on lead synth. The lead synth. Brian, super producer yeah. Taps. Brian. Uh, great intro. I yes. love that music. That so intro good. is unbelievable. That is super producer Brian Taps making that Someone intro. Someone touched my nipples. He is doing his super awesome synth powers, but a little bit in the style of who we are talking about. Two parts for Halloween this week and next week. Mr. Clive Barker. <laughs> There's a little less BDM, just BDSM, little bit, just yeah. a little. Mr. John Howard Carpenter, Ooh. a.k.a. Frank Armitage, a.k.a. John T. Chance, a.k.a. Rip Hate, a.k.a. Martin Quartermass, a.k.a. The Horror Master, a.k.a. The Master of Horror. Uh, A.k.a. my babysitter. <laughs> he is one of our great favorites. We've been waiting to do this for a long time, and we thought it'd be a great special occasion here in the spook season to do one of the great masters of horror, truly one of the great innovators, one of the great Americans, and someone who has a very fun to talk about movie career because there is an amazing rise and a bizarre fall. Oh, my God. <laughs> Week one, we are going to talk about the rise, though. Week two will be fun as shit. Yes, but we will be discussing the mini strokes that he called films. <laughs> yeah. A.K.A. the come down from cocaine. Yeah. Sometimes fully on cocaine, but the come down a touch. We'll go into it. We're just going to go into it real quick, John. As I said, Howard Carpenter, that is his real name, born January 16th, 1948 in Carthage, New York. Early on was always kind of a phenom. He was a phenom kid at music, particularly, which we'll come back to. He's an amazing composer. Both of his parents were musicians. His dad was a professor of music. His family moved when he was like a kid. They moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, so his dad could take over the University of Bowling Green's music program, where his mom also worked. And he kind of had a weird idyllic childhood, but also a strange, spooky suburban childhood, which will come back in a lot of his movies, yeah. where, as we have found out in America, the suburbs are not as safe as you think they are. Creepy stuff happens, including, particularly when he's a kid, an escaped inmate escapes from a mental asylum in Kentucky and doesn't kill anybody, but terrifies everyone. Where, where is he? He's somewhere. He's definitely ate a skunk. Yes, uh, mental health was just regarded as these nutballs should be locked in a cage and they're loose. He probably just needed, I don't know, Adderall and LSD or was gay. And they're like, we need to shock yeah. this guy until he doesn't like man chest anymore. But he was really into movies, really into music. Big surprise. And he ended up going to Western Kentucky University where his dad had then relocated to be the head of the music department at Western Kentucky University, but he quit to go to a place called the University of Southern California. Hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, Heard of that. Some some famous people have gone to a that. Couple. A couple of them. Leonard Moulton. <laughs> that is true, actually. Will Ferrell. Yeah. <laughs> he was definitely a baby boomer. He was in his 20s when he went to USC, and in 1969... 
He wrote and directed an eight-minute short film called Captain Voyeur. Mm. Have you ever seen this movie? I have not. I actually saw it at Columbia, and it's very interesting because it goes on a little bit of the zeitgeist at the time. There's serial killers happening in California. There are creeps running around. And he makes a very spooky movie about a guy who looks in people's windows, mm. which will come George back. George McFly. <laughs> Guys, he's a peeping Tom. <laughs> I hit another kid with the car. But it's interesting because we'll get into it. There's another very famous movie he makes where there's some interesting scenes where people look in the windows mm. at other people. And that original- All of them. Yes. But Captain Voyeur has two big things in it already, which is it's spooky as fuck and it has his dope-ass synth music in it. And 1968, Tangerine Dream, I mean, The Doors. There's lots of interesting keyboard, synth, organ stuff, particularly coming out of Southern California. So it's interesting that he's a little bit in that tradition as well. The next year, he collaborated with producer John Longnecker as co-writer, film editor, and music composer for a film called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. And it actually won an Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film. If you've never seen The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, it's pretty wild style. And that music is rad sauce. Very much so recommend. He's already kicking ass. He's already kind of a name. Already in L.A., people are like, who's this guy? Let's get him to make our music at the very least. And... In 1970, him and a good friend of his, a guy named Dan O'Bannon, they make their very first feature film. Dan O'Bannon writes it and stars in it, and John Carpenter directs it. It is a movie called Dark Star in 1974. It is not about assholes. It is about sci-fi. And Dan O'Bannon, who would then go on to write Alien later. You've seen Dark Star? A long time ago. Yeah. It's weird. I like it. You could tell so how weird. cheap it is. Yeah, it cost sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, and the you time was about like thirty thousand screen, but still, a two hundred thousand dollar feature yeah. film is a not very expensive. No, and also it's funny because a few of those things from the script wound up in fucking Alien. Oh, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah a lot of. He basically was like, he basically did what Michael Mann did with Heat and that TV movie. Yes, and. Literally, I will say this, something that jumped out at me about Dark Star was that Dan O'Bannon also did the special effects for it, and that was cool enough that it caught George Lucas's eye, and he hired him, and some of the wilder effects in the original Star Wars are Dan O'Bannon. No shit. Yeah, so it's an interesting pairing. You know, it's an interesting time in Hollywood. It's the early 70s. Spielberg's coming up, Lucas is coming up, and John Carpenter is coming up. I mean, that's... Carpenter and O'Banion were the Buzzcocks. Yeah, they were the punk rock side. They really were. And at least at that point in Hollywood, we're regarded in that same kind of vein. These guys are people we should give money to. And that would lead them because they then caught the eye of some decently larger producers, a guy named J.S. Kaplan is an old production company called CKK Productions. They made smaller movies, but a little bit bigger, and they made, in 1976, a movie called Assault on Precinct 13. Yes. My favorite Rio Bravo movie. Yes. And I'll say this about Dark Star. We kind of glossed over it, but Dark Star is a little bit of a reinvention of the sci-fi movie already. 
It's a sci-fi horror movie that is not like other sci-fi horror movies. It's low budget, so it doesn't pull it off all the way. Yeah. This will be a theme in John Carpenter. Oh, my <laughs> God. In- we should literally just call the second half episode, <laughs> we had no money, we, we made this instead. <laughs> just give us the money. Just imagine him in the 80s, like, finally coming down off of doing all the coke during the production. He's in the editing room. He's like, how are we supposed to edit this into a movie? We forgot to shoot the plot. <laughs> we don't... We barely have anything. I know. Synth music. Yeah. That will be also a second theme. Also, Assault on Precinct 13. A little wonky of a title. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I love that movie, but. So many hard edges. Precinct. It's not the easiest word to say. But it was influenced by a Howard Hawks film that I do love called Rio Bravo. Yeah. As well as probably Peck and Paw with uh, the Wild Bunch of definitely Wild Bunch. You know, just some maniacs get trapped, and it's the Alamo, and they're gonna have to fight their way out. This is his first great movie. Yes, it's the dreaded '70s pacing, mm. so it takes a little bit, but it's worth it. This movie in the first like ten minutes, like a kid gets shot in the chest, like a little girl. <laughs> Literally just threw her ice cream. She drops the ice cream. There's a bullet hole, and she just drops Schindler's List style. Why do we like it when there's a kid who gets shot in the first minutes of a movie face-off? Because we know it's going to be bonkers after that. (laughs) That is true. If that's how you open the movie. open with the kid? That is. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Things have escalated quickly. It also would create a genre. Obviously, we said there were some old-timey westerns. But in the 80s, nobody had done the standoff movie in a long time. And now, Green Room, I mean, there's the standoff horror movie. Is its own genre. Absolutely, including a crappy remake of Assault on Precinct 13. I I saw it in theaters. I have a very awkward soft spot for Ethan Hawke. (laughs) I grew up watching all those Richard Linklater movies. And Gattaca, Gattaca, Gattaca. <laughs> like, how am I not supposed to go see him and Lawrence Fishburne and John Leguizamo? Yes. Gabriel Byrne. Was anyone excited for Gabriel Byrne? Anyways, this movie was dog shit. It was yeah. terrible. Yeah, the it remake. Was so bad. The remake. But the original. The original is great. It has the already f- kind of hallmarks of great Carpenter stuff where there's this weird biting dialogue, these zany characters. Wild ash action sequences. You can tell how low the budget was. You could tell, but but he did way more with it. You could do way more with a dark Los Angeles alley than you can in space. Agreed. And also something we'll talk about: really nice blocking. Something yeah. I always bring up: blocking with the actors, getting just these a lot of characters in this movie. Ensemble doing some interesting stuff already that will be hallmarks of his career. I do genuinely. Where's enjoy- Blair? <laughs> He not only wrote, directed, and scored it, but he also edited the film using a pseudonym, like I said, John T. Chance, which was the name of John Wayne's character in Rio Bravo. Oh, wow. So he didn't... I appreciate, He didn't hide anything. I also appreciate he's like, man, I'm, I don't want to be that dickhead where the, each each thing comes up and it says, directed by John Carpenter, yeah. written by John Carpenter. He's like, I'm going to throw some other names in there. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been hilarious, though, if one of his aliases was Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Also, this was the first film where he would work with Deborah Hill as his Love her. producer. Yes, absolutely. She will come back into lots and lots of movies with him, particularly some of his big hits. If you don't know who John Carpenter is. the next one. Absolutely. And if you don't know who John Carpenter or Deborah Hill is, and if you've never seen any of these movies, 
the real rise of John Carpenter, all of these, I think you should see, will obviously have a blockbuster wall, but these are all. These my- became like the movies that set up the tropes yes. for everything. Yes, yes. Particularly 80s horror and action. Yeah. 90s horror and action. I mean. If people didn't try to cash in on the original Halloween movie. Yes. There would have been no slasher Genre, there'd be no 80s horror movie. We would have done that episode. None of us would have listened to the second part because (laughs) we were too drunk and touched to finish editing it. I was stone sober. It's like... I'm a Mormon. Yeah. (laughs) I don't drink caffeine. I don't dance. (laughs) You want those carrots out of your pockets. (laughs) I'd like to eat carrots. That's all I eat. Also, there would be no 90s postmodern horror. Exactly. Because already he's being postmodern a little bit of old westerns, bringing it into horror. He's... A guy who understands movies and is doing something really cool and really different with it already in his truly first real movie, Assault on Precinct 13. After that, the film received critical praise, but it was kind of considered an exploitation film in the 70s. Which is hilarious because they've had no more money. Yes. He directed a TV movie called Someone's Watching Me with Lauren Hutton, Timothy Hutton's sister. It's a tale of a single working woman soon after arriving in L.A. discovers that she is being stalked. I've never seen this movie. Neither have I. Yeah, it's a TV movie. It's hard to find. But after that, he wrote a movie called Eyes of Laura Mars. I've seen a lot of that. Yeah, Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones. It was directed by Irvin Kirshner. Empire, right? Yeah, Empire Strikes Back. But he wrote it. And that was the first major studio film because they were like, this guy kind of, he's doing stuff that people like. Yeah. Let's get him to write something. And that's going to be a big theme in the 80s for him, just fighting studios. Mm -hmm. However, after that, after that was a little bit of a hit, that Tommy Lee Jones, Faye Dunaway movie that no one's ever seen, it made money and they were like, well, let's give him some money for a movie called Halloween. The producers of it, their daughter saw Assault on Precinct 13. They're like, you should hire John Carpenter for this. And they hired him to make The Babysitter Murders. Ooh. A guy named Erwin Yablins, who was a big-time Hollywood producer at the time, had a thing that was sitting in development hell, a script in development hell called The Babysitter Murders. And as he knew, it was already a wonky title. And it was... Yablins, who said, what I like about the script is that it just takes place on Halloween and it's a suburban nightmare. And he told Carpenter, you can change anything you want from it. I just want three things. I want it to be scary in the suburbs. I want it to involve babysitters. And I want it to just take place on Halloween. You can do whatever the shit else you want. And needless to say, I think... He ran with it. Oh, yeah. Because I would make the argument that Halloween is just as Citizen Kane is to postmodern film. John Carpenter's Halloween is to horror. It is a absolute fucking classic. Yes. It is the game changer. It is master class. Yes. I think, honestly, and it comes out in 1978, and it is wild. As I brought up those three names, Spielberg makes Jaws in 75, George Lucas makes Star Wars in 77, and John Carpenter makes Halloween in 1978. Yeah. And those three movies are 
game changing across the board for all of the genres that they are part of. After that, all of the horror, big budget horror movies that Hollywood will put out after that will come out at Halloween. I mean, even just that, even just that little, it would change the way Hollywood would perceive the horror movie, that it could be a mega blockbuster, that it could be not just some indie exploitation movie with tits and blood, you know, that it could be something else, that he basically made a more horrifying, demented, synthwave version of Psycho that was even more frightening because, I mean, let's just talk about Halloween for a second. I mean, Michael Myers, to me, when I first saw Halloween, it was scary to me. I am a ghoul, but I loved it. Oh, I loved it. I was obsessed. Yes. The neighbors across the street from us would print out things about Haddonfield because I wouldn't stop talking about Halloween. Yes. There's this dude from Italy. I don't remember his name and his (laughs) wife. But I was obsessed with this. Like, Halloween became... It was like the Beatles for me. Yeah. Yeah, and it had all of this magical realism to it. Michael Myers, what is he? They say he's a man. They say that he's Jamie Lee Curtis. Also, Jamie Lee Curtis, we should say, is in this movie. And she's amazing. She's amazing. And it would create the idea of the Scream Queen. It would create the idea, not the idea, it would create Jamie Lee Curtis as a A-list movie star. But it also, you know, that Michael Myers is her weird brother who murdered- Depends the- on what timeline you're going with. I'm, going, don't mention I'm not retconning anything. No, no, no. <laughs> they don't actually mention that in this one. They mention it in Halloween too. No, in the first one, it's- There's no clear reason why he's following her. He murders his family in the beginning of the movie. He murders his sister in 1963. I don't know. Okay, this is interesting. You're messing with me a little bit. Because the movie, if you've never seen it, you should see it. Spoiler alert a little bit. But it has one of the great openings to me where some creep is looking in the window on a family, right? And it has that awesome John Carpenter score. And this creep is looking in on the family. And the creep is following them. And the creep comes in. And the creep murders them with a knife. Just a sister. From POV, right? There's a murder with a POV murder. And then they catch the murderer and the camera turns and the POV is a kid, a child in a clown costume with a knife. And that is Michael Myers. And then it cuts to... 15 years later, 1978. Right, and you're right. There is weird reasons why he's following... Later, I guess you're right. Later, it would be that yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis is more the than anything. Jamie Lee Curtis's dad is a realtor, yeah. So she drops off a key at the Myers oh, house. He's mad at gentrification. So yes, him and Spike Lee. Yeah. <laughs> so go watch that. Listen to that episode. So yeah, it's a good episode. She drops off the key. He sees her and then just starts following her. Right, but in that magical realism, he appears and disappears. Oh yeah, he is everywhere. He's a myth. He's the shape. He's, he's credited as the shape. Right. That scene where he escapes from the mental asylum and all the. Other nutballs, excuse me, that's the correct term, right, for people who have mental illness. The other nutballs are all wandering around in the rain, and Donald Pleasance comes up, and he's clearly broken out and killed all the guards, and everything's nuts. And Michael Myers is loose, and Donald Pleasance begins to talk about how I tried to talk to this guy for 15 years, and he just sat staring at a wall, and then all of a sudden he's out and loose. And is he even a man? And that whole thing where... It's enough suspension of disbelief where they finally shoot him and he sits back up, does the undertaker, creates that kind of thing, falls out the window and disappears after they kill him, quote unquote. 
what is he? He's not human, not anymore. You know, I don't know. It's you like you said, the shape. He's the ghost. He's pure evil. Mm. He talks about it. He spent he's seven pure years. fear. He's like a demon. I don't know. Like he spent seven years trying to reach him and eight years trying to keep him locked up. Mm. In the devil's eyes, the blackest eyes. A that's, doll's eyes. Oh, that's that is movie. the best part about Michael Myers in the first one. Yes. And why the sequels ruin it. Because he is just this fucking pale-faced yes. William Shatner cosplayer going around killing for no reason. There's no explanations. He's just there, and he's going to fucking terrorize everybody. Mm. And it doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. That's the most scary part. He's just doing it at random. He saw her at a house. He followed her to her school. He saw PJ Souls and Nancy Myers. They were babysitting in the same area, so he's just going to terrorize everybody. He doesn't give a shit. It's Halloween, and he's here to fuck your life up. Interesting. It is amazing. Were they in his old house? Hmm? Were they in his old house? Donald Pleasance and the sheriff were waiting for him there. He was at his old house. Right. That's where Lori drops off the key. That's where he eats the skunk. No. And that's where... um, Oh, I know. This is the biggest bottle. (laughs) Donald Pleasance spends the whole fucking movie outside of Michael Myers' house. Yes. Old house. And then he looks down the street, and randomly, it's the car from the mental house. At the mental institute, sorry. The mental Nut house. Nutballs. And it's just right there, the station wagon. It's like, dude, you've been standing out there for four hours. How yeah. did you not notice a station wagon <laughs> from your work that you were in the night before? Yeah. And then he just starts wandering down the street, and then the sheriff rolls up, Sheriff Brackett, who's Annie's father. And he's just like... <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? I couldn't find you. Said, He's around here somewhere. Go look for him. That's, That's the van. And he drives <laughs> off. And then he just like wanders. This is where it's believable, though. Yeah. He just wanders around until there's a commotion. Mm-hmm. He can't do anything. He can't find him. So as soon as he hears those kids running out of the house because the boogeyman's there. That's what Michael really is. The boogeyman. He's the boogeyman. He also hates laundry. He does hate laundry. He but loves like loves hanging out behind laundry and just like for flashes. Just for flashes. Like, stupid laundry. He's always mad at it. And but yeah, and then Donald <laughs> Pleasance hears children yelling on Halloween and goes, That's where the murder is. That's children don't is. yell on Halloween. No, never. Unless it's Nick Castle, the future <laughs> director of Mr. Wrong, yes. starring Ellen DeGeneres and also Dennis the Menace of the movie. And he's got a mask on. And he just got stabbed in the face by Janet Lee's daughter. And we go, stop this shit. <laughs> also, Carpenter described Halloween. These are in Carpenter's words. True crass exploitation. I decided to make a film I would love to have seen as a kid full of cheap tricks like a haunted house at a fair where you walk down the corridor and things jump out at you. I, I mean, it's... He undersells it. He undersells he, it. He doesn't think it's a big deal, but right. it's the biggest deal ever. Yes. Like, they made it for $375,000. Yeah. And then it made, like, $77 million. Million at the box it is, office. It is one of the most successful independent films yeah. of all time. It was the highest-grossing independent film until Blair Witch. Yes. Because yes. they made that for $14 and a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> and it made $200 million. Yeah. And then they made that second one, which is... The worst movie ever made. Surprisingly, at the theaters, it made $100 and three bags of cheese. Yeah, it was, well, I mean. It was such a weird thing. They just took them and threw them out of the car at the county line. So basically, Carpenter's riding high off of this. He can do whatever he wants. He's John Carpenter now. He made Halloween. and they He agreed to do it for $10,000 to do everything. Yeah. Produce, write, score. Yeah. 
for $10,000 so we could have his name above the title. That's why it's John Carpenter's Halloween. Right. Because he was like, I don't need money. I need to get fucking rich. To be fair, the year before, another guy named George Lucas did a similar deal where he said, you don't have to pay me anything up front. I just get back-end rights across the board. And that worked. But Carpenter knows the writing on the wall. He's taken back-end. He is still worth $40 million to this day, possibly just because of his back-end rights for the movie Halloween. If you've never seen Halloween, now is the season. Now is the time. You should watch it. And in 1979... We're going to move through. Carpenter makes a television movie. He goes back to making a TV movie. It is a movie called Elvis. Guess what it's about? It is about Elvis, and it stars a young actor. Elvis Costello? (laughs) It is not. It is a guy with much cooler hair. And one of my favorite actors of all time, and would be his Johnny Depp to Tim Burton, his DiCaprio to Scorsese, he finds a young actor named Kurt Russell uh. who plays Elvis in the TV movie Elvis. Also, he plays Elvis in Forrest Gump. He plays Elvis a lot. He plays... 3,000 Miles to Graceland? Yes, he's, he's... That's my least favorite Elvis. <laughs> I know. He's, he, he does Kevin pretty- Costner. <laughs> Let's rob a casino or something. I don't know. I didn't watch it. I didn't watch the whole thing. <laughs> I blacked out through it. Yeah. They would not work together for a little while because after that, Carpenter followed up the success of Halloween with a movie called The Fog. Watch out. The Fog is after you. A you ghost. think you're enjoying your San Francisco night? <laughs> Watch out for The Fog, but hope you're in Maine. Hope you have your raincoat on. It was co-written by he Deborah can Hill. borrow my slicker. It is, in my opinion... One of the shittiest movies I've ever seen. I'm going to say that right out <laughs> I don't hate it. I mildly enjoy it. There's parts of it that are good. It's not a good movie. I suppose it's more that it's the follow-up to Halloween, and I was very psyched to watch it after I started to really get into John Carpenter when I rented Halloween from Blockbuster. And I was like, what's the next one? And then I rented The Fog, and I was like, why am I so bored? Why yeah. is this the most boring movie I've ever seen? I don't think it's the most boring. I didn't... Look, there's no way to finish this. He, just, he himself was dissatisfied with the movie. Yeah. He himself said, I don't know. I tried a thing. He had been thinking of a thing. What's interesting is that later, in a way, another extremely skilled storyteller named Stephen King would take that idea and create the short story, The Mist, and... I got what he was going for of this idea. Ghost pirates. Yeah, ghost pirates. Yeah. Scary mist bugs are way more interesting than ghost pirates. Yar. Yar. You know what's not scary, really? I know they were maybe scary at the time. Pirates in general. Yeah. They're not scary. They've They've got parrots. I mean, I understand maybe if you actually are being boarded by pirates in the 1700s, it's actually scary. But outside of that, I mean... I don't hate it. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. And despite its extremely negative critical reception, The Fog was another commercial success. It cost a million bucks, but it grossed 25 million bucks. Yeah. Pretty solid. You know why? hmm. Because the commercial went, from the director of Halloween. Yes, exactly. Something you'll forget by the time you get to the parking lot. But 
to his credit and his dissatisfaction, he said to himself, if I make another horror movie and it doesn't work, that's the end of my career. So I have one last shoot my shot. I'm the bell of the ball in Hollywood at the moment. I'm going to take, I'm going to take my shot and I'm actually going to shoot it as hard as I can at the bullseye. And I'm going to get Lee Van Cleef and I'm going to get Kurt Russell and I'm going to get my girlfriend at the time, Adrian Barbo, as well as Donald Pleasance again, as well as, you know, Ernest Borgnine. And (laughs) I'm going to make one of the coolest sci-fi movies of all time. And in 1981, he made Escape from New York. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Dun, dun, dun. One of his best scores. One of his best movies. One of the coolest ideas in the history of cinema. Think about this. I know now it's another one where now lots of slasher movies exist that just steal from Halloween and are or just are very influenced by Halloween. Now there are tons of movies that have oh, yeah. wild sci-fi he ideas. Sued. He sued Luke Besson and won in yes. French court because he made some movie with Guy Pierce that was literally Escape from New York mm-hmm. and uh, Sultan Precinct 13. Escape from Paris. Yeah. <laughs> Escape from the truth. I married my girlfriend when she was 14. Oh, he's France. He's devout. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you could have uh, for breakfast uh, two cigarettes and a Diet Coke. So, yes, I agree. I agree. It's. It is an unbelievable idea for a movie. It blew everyone's mind when it came out. No one had thought of a sci-fi movie like this. I'm going to go out and say it. He's the greatest anti-hero ever. Uh, oh, okay. Snake Plissken. Yes. Kurt Russell appears. This is also, now Kurt Russell is ubiquitous to American culture. This is Kurt Russell, really, yeah. like, appearing. To he used ev- to be in all those fucking Disney movies first. Yes. And then used cars. He played baseball for his dad's minor league baseball team. He was... Bing, Russell's. Bing Russell, yes, who was in Bonanza and shit. This was, though, the beginning of Kurt Russell. This is Snake Plissken. Yeah. Why are we talking? I mean, this is the coolest hair in the history of cinema, the coolest eye patch in the history of cinema, and him and Lee Van Cleef. If you don't know who Lee Van Cleef is, do yourself a favor and watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, if nothing else. And he took this guy who is this classic spaghetti western guy. I mean... Everybody in this movie is amazing. All the different characters. Yeah. It's truly one of those movies. And it's such a wild idea. Brad Dorif in that little scene. And the idea, if you've never seen it, is that in the future, in the far future, like the 1990s, that New York has turned into such a hellhole because in the 80s, it was getting very close to being that, that they abandon it and they just take the island of Manhattan and turn it into a prison like Australia. And they just send shitty people there like Australia. And... The president's plane crash lands there. Like in Australia. Like in Australia. And they can't just send in the SWAT team. They try that. It doesn't work. The weird prison society that is there kills them very quickly. So they say, what if we take this weird renegade special forces maniac... Pump him full of a virus. Yes. And tell him he has to do it. He has to save him or he dies. And you have Snake Plissken. And I'm not going to tell you what happens, but you're a number one. You're the Duke of New York. I mean, it's one of the coolest movies. There's no CGI in it. There's some amazing matting in it. If you want to see amazing classical late 70s, early 80s special effects, literally it goes in order. The Empire Strikes Back, Escape from New York. If you want to see the tip top of the coolest weird special effects people are trying to pull off in the late 70s, early 80s, 
you watch those two movies and Escape from New York has a darker, wilder edge than any of it. And I love Escape from New York. I could watch it anytime, anywhere. I like it more than Halloween. I'm going to say it. Okay. That's why we're doing this. <laughs> any other thoughts on... What have, I didn't say any thoughts yet. No. Escape from New York. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> is a classic. It is absolutely perfect. Kurt Russell. That's all it is. It's Kurt Russell. He's surrounded by characters. All the bad guys have characters. Like, they all have dimensions. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's there. They send him in. There's literally a scene where this man picks up a chair and sits on it and is like, fuck, <laughs> this is harder than I thought. And you just watch it, and it's dramatic. But also, it is an action movie, but it's a creepy fucking horror mm-hmm. movie at the core. There's a scene where he's in a fucking diner and all these oh. fuckers come up out of the floor and drag him down. That is like New York at night, though. They will come out of the sewers and attack. Uh, not so much. <laughs> Who's your favorite random side character? In it's this? Ernest Borgnine, oh, of course. Cabby? Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty Oh, great. Snake! This, this and that! Oh, it's a terrible impression, but... I love where he finds him. He finds him in an old theater, an old movie theater, yeah. but they literally because they've created their own society. That's the other thing I like, too. It's a little bit of a social commentary, even though it's a prison, but it's like a prison, as I said, like Australia, where there's no rules. There's no guards. It's a prison island. So they've created their own culture, and there's good guys and bad guys within that. Not everybody is a complete maniac. Some people like to sit around and watch theater. Some people maybe... Got older. And well, I mean, it's supposed to be like a girly crimes. show, but it's just a dude in a dress. I know. <laughs> well, it's very Shakespearean. Yeah. There's, it's old vaudeville, you know, just kind of watching people sing songs, something to pass the time. Before television, children, people used to watch other actual live people just do dumb shit to entertain them. And it led us to this pandemic. <laughs> also, Harry Dean Stanton is fucking great in this. Harry Dean Stanton, Isaac Hayes. It's his first movie role as, and I'm going to spoil it a little bit, the Duke of New York. And as an amazing, amazing renegade. His car has chandeliers on it. As a feudal ganglord, maybe the coolest of all time. I mean, the Duke, the Duke of New York. I mean, it's wild. The shots are great. There's some amazing shots. Dean Cundy. Yeah, Dean, he was, Dean Cundy also, this is kind of a secret Dean Cundy cinematographer extraordinaire. In my mind, when Carpenter's movies are really, really clicking at the highest levels, they kind of have Dean Cundy just making the coolest shots out of nothing, out of nothing. That shot where the helicopter comes in to Manhattan and it's this destroyed Manhattan, but it's the middle of the day. I don't know how they pulled that shit off. I have no idea how they made that shot. I still, to this day... Especially with the budget. This is another yes. low-budget genre movie that everybody thought he was the next Alfred Hitchcock with Halloween. Yeah. He said he always just wanted to be John Ford. Mm. He's going to make what he can with what he's got and turn out the best shit he has. And, like, this is proof. This budget is not high, and he made a movie where, like, Dark Star failed... This succeeded. Yes. This is realistic. This yes. this is like hard sci-fi. Like you say, it's another city. It's not like a fucking prison. Like they have their own culture. They have their own currency. Everything's real over there. They all got Bitcoin and cell phones. <laughs> it's the future, man. They do have giant cell phones, which I like. Yeah. Because it's the future. 1997 or some shit like that. 
Um, which they would be kind of giant cell phones in 1997. They kind of, should we just Jeremy Piven in his car? I I think we have to move on as much as we'd like to continue talking about it. We will go back to escape from New York. We've talked about it many times, but it was another hit. It made $30 million at the box office. It has an 85% on rotten tomatoes. It's probably his most critically praised outside of Halloween, but People loved it. People loved Escape from New York. And it fully solidified John Carpenter. That was the name, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. And I give him credit for doing his kind of horror. Like I said, I think Stephen King had a little bit of influence on him too of just the element of Stephen King was kind of one of the first guys in the 80s whose name appeared bigger on the book than the title. You know, that was a beginning to happen in the 80s, the early 80s. And... He was like, well, why don't I do that with a movie? I don't, nobody else is doing that. John Carpenter's Halloween. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. And it worked. It stuck in my head. His next film may be his most technically skilled film and maybe our favorite film. We just watched it. 1982, it is maybe his highest production value and a movie that sticks with me for the rest of my days. Ennio Morricone did the score for this, though. The elite... It's like, well, I'm John Carpenter, but maybe there's a guy who's just a touch better than me. It is a movie called The Thing. Oh, yeah. The Thing from Another World, he loved it as a kid. This is a sequel, but it is... It's not really a sequel. Right. It's a spiritual sequel. Uh, It's the same. Right. He wanted that matte shot of the same-looking spaceship in the ice, and that there crashed alien spaceships in the ice in Antarctica. That's kind of the only sequel to it at all, when I say that. I mean, it's the same thing for the first one. Right, yes. That's what I mean. And that there was a 50s version of this that he wanted to make a spiritual sequel slash maybe, who knows, in his mind, in his Quentin Tarantino universe, it's the same world. But the thing is about a science station in Antarctica that an alien shows up into. And it's not ALF. It's much more upsetting and is some of the coolest special effects of all time. It is Kurt Russell at his beardiest and coolest. Keith David, it is the best acting I ever saw out of Wolford Brimley. It is un-ba-fucking-leavable. Nick, tell, tell me some thing thoughts. It's his best movie. Yes. Without a doubt. Not just, like, filmmaking-wise, but just story-wise, suspense-wise. It's fucking creepy. It's scary. It has some of the greatest practical effects that will ever be on film again. Snaps to that. Yes. No one else could have made this movie, and there's no way anyone... Like, they did the prequel to this. And because it showed, like, what the Swedes were doing. Oh, no! This is a whole... Oh, no, the Ludafisk. And it was fucking terrible. (laughs) This movie is a remake, but it is a singular piece of art upon itself. This came up the same day as Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. This is, to horror movies, but Blade Runner is the hard sci-fi. Mm-hmm. This movie is perfect. I agree, 100%. There's 12 characters. They all have their own personality. You all know who they are. Yeah. Like you said, the blocking, they're standing around. There's nine guys in a shot, and then David Moffat's just, where's Blair? And you know it's all going to move. Everything happens. Like, it's a fucking shape-shifting alien from space that wanders into camp as a dog. Spoiler. But then it's like, (laughs) 
It's all believable. Yes. Nothing in this that happens is completely preposterous. They all, it's so reined in. Mm. It could have gone off in a million different ways if somebody else made this, if that Paul W.S. Anderson made this in fucking 1997. <laughs> it would have been nonsense. Oh my God. It would be the event horizon in it would also got, It would have also gotten noted to death by the studios. They wouldn't have allowed it to exist. They wouldn't have allowed it to be... As raw and nihilistic and, and dark, yes, creepy. Oh, and just as you said, I cannot reiterate enough that these are the best practical effects of all time. Yeah, they are better than Rob Bottoms was they, the most talented dude in 1982. It's the wildest shit you will ever see, and it all looks great still to this day because it's practical effects. Dean Cundy, Dean Cundy, the lighting. Whoever his gaffers were, I don't have them in front of me, but man, the lighting, the set, I, they filmed it in Alaska as Antarctica, but it looks cold. It yeah. looks frozen and wasteland. It's horrifying. And it's a story as old as time of when something creepy happens in the town, the town turns on each other. But that Twilight Zone kind of thing, of who's the alien? You're yeah. the alien? Are you the alien? And everyone starts to freak out and everyone starts to nitpick each other and already you have the cabin fever of these guys who already have beef with each other and that beef comes out and that's electric. All these actors are acting their fucking asses off. I mean, it's wild. It's wild stuff. Also, John Carpenter predicted lab tops because <laughs> there's a character in there named Mac and the character in there named Windows <laughs> and they're fighting each other. Also, and Mac wins and also at one point one of my favorite scenes kurt russell gets mad at a computer and pours that's scotch the, that's into his it. first scene <laughs> he's playing chess wizard and it beats him and he just goes cheating asshole and pours a glass at jmb into the circuit and it explodes in this 80s glory <laughs> like that's never gonna happen but it's still amazing he also is one of the few people i've ever seen pull off a sombrero in a movie i mean especially as a white guy yes holy shit he should have that sombrero with him all times i think he might i think he might <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me at all if i met kurt russell and he's just wearing that sombrero yeah also the audio commentary for this on the blu-ray this and escape from la which is the next episode it basically sounds like john carpenter and kurt russell at the point where they're basically admitting how high they are yes just recording and talking about it and it heightens everything it's amazing oh i would love to listen to that i would love to listen to that and it was released by universal and it was one of Universal's biggest hits of the 80s. And it really put it's Carpenter... Bombed. No, uh, no, the thing bombed. But what I should say is since then... Oh, yeah, since then. Since then, you're right. I posited that incorrectly. At the time, it was not a big hit. But well, like, E.T. got released like a month earlier. I know, I know. And that he's on Universal with yeah. Steven Spielberg, so he kind of now has to compete with him. But since then, it has become one of the highest grossing movies for Universal ever. Merchandise from the thing. They still make toys. They still make T-shirts. They still make... It's iconic. Yeah, it's iconic. It is one of those movies that... When people say cult classic, yeah... But it's up there. And you said Blade Runner was released at the same time. Same day. It's but, amazing. I mean, they're similar in that yeah. way. Yeah. They changed the game, and it maybe a bit was a little too much for everybody at the time. But it did receive insane amounts of critical praise. Oh, yeah. Everyone loved this movie. It's like the Velvet Underground for fucking horror fans. Yes. <laughs> it's a very good way of putting it. 
it was such a I remember seeing it as a kid. And freaked me out. What freaked me out more was less about the alien and more about people turning on each other. That's what I mean. That's the yeah. whole movie, though. Yeah, I know. It's and like it, yeah. there's he has it in that scene. He goes, I know now of you are aliens because you just attack me and kill me right now. So mm. I mean some of you are human. Mm. He's not fighting the alien. The alien's blending in yeah. and just saying, I don't want to go outside with you. You're a you're the alien. But it's like it's all of them at each other's throats. And they fucking leave him outside the fucking freeze to death. Who gives a shit about him? And they're fucking attacking each other. Even when he they're proving they're not aliens, they're still attacking each other and calling each other murderers. Also, I have a weird thing with being frozen to death and cold. I've never liked it. And being in the coldest, most desolate. Free- Can we turn off The Shining 10 minutes before it ends? I mean, <laughs> well, that's kind of hilarious. Though. Yeah. I've, but... I will also agree that the ending of the thing, we're not going to spoil anything, but man, is it the most nihilistic ending of any movie I've ever seen. I love it. It's, it's perfect. It's so dope. And there's so many theories behind it. Mm. Uh, also, and Keith, it goes back to the chess game. This time, Keith David. Yes. Yes. His first time working with Keith David, who... Did you tell me this motherfucker got up out of the ice and just <laughs> walked his way there? <laughs> Blair, do you believe any of this voodoo bullshit? Just go back and watch their faces during different scenes. Oh, yeah. Watch each guy's face. Each guy's doing a different facial tick depending on what people say. It's bizarre. It's in how excellent it is. It is an excellent piece of Theater. filmmaking. It is. It is an amazing piece of movie, and I can't recommend it enough. Um it also, as you said, E.T. came out at the same time. Yeah, so. nobody wanted to go see that shit. They wanted <laughs> they to see were. Drew Barrymore yeah. fucking walk that little fucking egg roll uh. out of the office <laughs> and be like, I got this guy. I'm drunk. And it's just like, oh, my God, I love that alien. It's like, oh, this thing eats everybody. Yes. <laughs> no nope, hard pass. We have to move on a little bit. We have to. We have to. We could talk about the thing for hours. Maybe one day we'll have a thing episode. Maybe as Blockbuster Film School moves along, we could just go into one of these movies because there's so many crazy stories. But after this, Universal offered John Carpenter, because they knew he was a fan of Stephen King, the chance to direct Firestarter, which would be with Drew Barrymore. Yeah. He turned it down. So he kind of took a little time. And a year later, he thought to himself, I do want to make a Stephen King movie. I do. I like Stephen King. They ended up being friends. I think this is back when Stephen King was still doing cocaine and drinking, and they ended up being drinking buddies. And Just cocaine buddies. (laughs) Well, Stephen King loved martinis. But Stephen King, according to legend, convinced him. He said, no, the movie you got to make is Christine. No. There's no way why this was drunk. Steve, they, why is your Stephen King from Brooklyn? <laughs> the movie you got to make is Christine. It's a, it's, a, it's a man. The movie you got to make uh, is a, about a car. A car that'll kill you. Drive you over, well. And he made Christine. Sometimes passing on the film is better. <laughs> Sometimes when a car is mad at you, it'll drive you over. You don't even know it. Yeah. He made Christine. That was his follow-up to... The thing where a Plymouth Fury has supernatural powers. Moving on. <laughs> now, okay, Christine is done. I hate it. It's <laughs> what's over that car? You don't care about cars. Oh no, the car, Nick! I hate classic cars. 
I hate the idea that some fucking dumb nerd is going to find a classic car and it's to be like, hey, yeah. I'm your best friend. <laughs> you like Herbie the love bug? Yeah. Call me Timmy the, <laughs> Timmy the, the, call me Christine the death bud. Whatever. Just let's go kill somebody. Watch out. <laughs> oh no, the car will get you. It's so it's fucking so dumb. Stupid. However, John Carpenter thought his career was over after Christine. He literally commiserated. He was like, well, that's... I like the fact that John Carpenter is <laughs> all... as neurotic as the rest of us. He always thinks his career he is just over. Walk... He's basically that documentary, My Life, directed by Nicholas Wending Refn, but just smoking a joint, calling his ex-wives and ex-girlfriends and be like, my career is over. I need you to produce this. So Universal drops him, okay? Michael Douglas steps in. And we've talked about this a little bit on Blockbuster Film School. Michael Douglas, great actor, but secretly a savior to a lot of people as a movie producer. Michael Douglas says, no, John Carpenter still has something in the tank. I like it. Michael Douglas basically has the in at Columbia Pictures. He goes to them and he says, look, I don't want you to make E.T., but what do you got that's sci-fi and is a little more soulful, something that is the zeitgeist right now? And in 1984, Michael Douglas produces Starman. And I love Starman. I think Starman is maybe, and I know this is controversial, but I love John Carpenter's score for Starman. I think it's maybe his most beautiful. It's He didn't do the music for it. I know. He didn't do all of it, but he hired a bunch of other people to do it. But Carpenter kind of composed a lot of the pieces, and he had other people do them. And I loved the music. I thought Starman came together in a way that blew my mind. And I still, I've watched it since then. And we were talking about that idea of movies that you watch when you're a kid that get worse when you get older or movies that you watch as a kid that you didn't understand that get better when you're older. And when I keep watching Starman, it has that spooky element where I learn different things depending on the age that I am. And I liked Starman when I was a kid because I thought it was a cool interesting sci-fi movie. I like it as an adult because, you know, when you have heartbreak and loss as an adult, it affects you in different ways. And I thought his take on Starman was really beautiful and really wild and and coming at a time where he thought his career was over, when he thought he was done, when his relationship with his girlfriend from Escape from New York was over, he thought his... Life was over, and he made Starman about a dead guy. And I love Starman. I don't know. What do you think? I'm not a huge fan. To <laughs> be straight up, I like it's a very well made movie. It works exactly how they want it to work. But uh, you know, I just don't care about all that human emotion. I've never been into it. I feel like it's just dragging me down. And uh, if I got rid of all of my emotions, I would just like- become president. <laughs> you just. I don't like feeling the things. I don't like no, no, I don't I, like getting I, close to my feelings. I love feeling the things. <laughs> I just don't. Part of me is always just like, okay, he's like Jeff Bridges is literally just playing an immigrant. Like this is this whole movie. Like it reminds me of people I grew up with. He plays a dead guy. I know, but he's an alien. Right. He's not playing the dead guy. Well, it's weird though. It's an interesting idea and that will come back in other stuff where he is an alien, but it's kind of a flip on the thing where the alien comes and it takes a dead guy's persona, right? 
and it kind of has some of his memories, it's mimicking him. And as it mimics him, it becomes more and more him. It's kind of like Swamp Thing or something. And it's... I don't like that either. Oh, I love... Well, the comic book Swamp Thing is amazing. Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is amazing. But you're right. I mean, the TV show is dumb as shit. Yeah. But it's an interesting idea. It's the other side thing. It's, it's a good movie. It's just Christine and Starman are the movies of his I've watched the least that I have seen. I love Starman. I love Starman. I think maybe this is the one we're going to differ on, but... That's fair. I respect your opinion, and uh, I know it's got some 80s cheese to it, that's for sure. Yes. Uh, Karen Allen is very awesome in it, and... Everything about this movie is is, good. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I like how Karen Allen's freaked out that it's her husband, but I don't care what Jeff Bridges is really doing. Yeah. Like, I cared enough to get through it the first time. I was like, this is great. This is a good movie. But it's like, you want to rewatch that ever? No. I'm okay. No, but man, I, I love it. I love it a lot. And I think Bridges is great in it. And uh, Jack Nitsche is the guy who does the score and he wins a Golden Globe for it. And Jeff Bridges received an Oscar and a Golden Globe nomination for it. And I don't know how many times John Carpenter had a movie he directed that anybody got nominated for Oscars in. You know, Steve Buscemi got Best Supporting <laughs> for Escape from LA. <laughs> Just for that one, <laughs> for that one double take. Yeah. They said Best Double Take, and then he got slimed because it was Peter the, the Fonda Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards. Peter Fonda got nominated for a Razzie. But it's so weird because he has the most iconic line in history where it's like, tsunami snake, tsunami. <laughs> Every time there's a tsunami on the Weather Channel, I turn to whoever I'm with and say it to them. And they just go inappropriate. Well, whether you like it or not, Starman received insanely high critical praise and was a hit. It was a hit again. He had failed two times in a row at the box office. And this was a big comeback. And after that, they offered him the movie Santa Claus the movie. (laughs) And he said, no. No. I don't want to make that. And they were like, what are you talking about? And that was like the biggest budget movie that they were making at Columbia. They were like, we want you to make Santa Claus the movie. And it didn't even have Tim Allen in it. And he said, uh, no, thank you. Uh, no, thank you. It's because Tim Allen was still selling cocaine to comedians <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah. Brian Dennehy who would be in Santa Claus movie, tried to get him to do it. And he apparently kept calling him on the phone. And he said, no, I don't want to fucking do this. Absolutely not. I'm not going to lie. Yes. If Brian Dennehy is Santa Claus, I want to see John Carpenter direct the movie. <laughs> no. I would watch Brian Dennehy do anything. I watched that fucking terrible Have you ever seen Santa Claus movie? movie? They made that fucking shithouse movie. No, it's, I can't watch it now that I know John Carpenter could have made it. Oh, it's real stupid. Yeah. Uh, so is the Knight of Cups. It's called Santa Claus the movie. This is also the height of cocaine in Hollywood, where they're just like, what about people like Superman? We're making a Superman movie. Oh, that made money. Like, name another famous person from whatever. Santa Claus, do it. That's, mm-hmm. Superman, Santa Claus, Batman, Jesus, whatever we got to make. Make it now. And <laughs> and you realize Al Pacino's character from Heat was a studio <laughs> yeah. exec. It's kind of. You know that that's... We watched some documentaries. No, I know. But in 1986, he takes his big budget clout and he makes a movie that I enjoy, but I understand is flawed. Yes. He goes back with his boy, though. And I will say, you can say whatever you want about Big Trouble in Little China, but you thought Kurt Russell's hair was dope in... 
fucking escape from New York. Kurt Russell's hair in Big Trouble Little China is next level. I am stunned. <laughs> I am. I'm looking at the corner. I'm so upset. He demanded that his biceps be on screen at all moments. There is no way you can honestly think his hair is better than that than in fucking Escape. They light it better. That doesn't matter. He is like the worst 80s mullet. He's got the same 80s mullet as my fucking cousin. He's a dipshit. <laughs> the only difference is he's not a weird ginger. Who looks like that kid from Terminator 2. The one thing I'll give Big Trouble in Little China as well is that it has the most Asian actors in the history of Hollywood in it. I don't know. What do you think about Big Trouble Little China, Nick? Let's go back to that comment. I, at the time, at the time, John Carpenter was like, I would actually like to have Asian or Asian American actors in this movie yeah. there to we play go. the Asian roles. And at the time, it had by far the largest Asian cast in the history of Hollywood. And it also starred Kurt Russell and Samantha. From I'm Samantha. I'm Samantha from Kim Cattrall is worse in this than she is in Sex and the City. She's literally just yeah. running around going, Hi, I'm Debbie Newscaster. I write the news for a magazine newspaper. I'm here to crack a story. I'm Debbie Newscaster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kim Cattrall, out. It's I like, dude. I don't see any flaws. That's she is exposition, <laughs> explanation point person. That's all she does. She just runs around yelling the plot. She's essentially Joseph Gordon-Levitt from Inception. <laughs> if you've never seen Big Trouble in Little China, though, it is a wild movie. You can't deny that. It's not like any movie that it came out in Hollywood before this. It's not a movie that would come out after this. It is... No, because this was a huge flop. They learned their lesson. I suppose, but it, it is another cult classic, though. Absolutely. It is absolutely still John, around. Kurt Russell himself has said... This is how old the story is. Kurt Russell used to wander into blockbuster videos or like local VHS plays. Like, you know, movie years we can't keep on the shelf. Big trouble. I mean, people like it. Eddie Murphy loved that movie. He loved it. He wanted John Carpenter to direct The Golden Child. There were so many people, even though it was a flop, there were even in Hollywood people yeah. liked that movie and they were like, oh man, this is something else. This is different. I would say that. I think maybe say like Barry Levinson and things like Men in Black and a vibe of a goofy, fun sci-fi action comedy hadn't really been done in a way. And it didn't work this time, but there were people, producers, where the wheels were turning and they said to themselves, this could work. This could work. It didn't work that time, but it could. And I agree Big Trouble has lots of flaws, but it also goes back to John Carpenter doing the score, which is cool. And... It's him doing something different. It's him, yeah. it's him doing something different. He's John Ford he, on yeah, a budget. Yeah, yeah. This is a very unique film, mm -hmm. to say the least. I think the best scene in this is the fucking alley scene because mm. the tension in that has no comic relief. Kurt Russell in this movie is not St. Pliskin. He's Captain Ron. He is here <laughs> for... Comic relief. He's a bumbling boob. Yes. Who literally stumbles, driver. stumbles ass backwards into trouble and gets out barely. He's Jack but Burton. He's Jack Burton. The check's in the mail. But <laughs> that fucking opening scene where they attack the guys having the funeral and they're yeah. in the truck stuck in the alley, and that's when Raiden first shows up, that's what draws you in for the rest of the movie. Agreed. 
Agreed. It's dumb up until that. This happens. It's real suspense. It's real drama. It is perfectly crafted. The blocking. There's fucking yeah. 50 guys in that, in that alley. Special effects look great. Yes. There's 50 guys in that alley. You can see all of them. They're all yes. doing something specific and unique. It is fantastic. And then it's just sort of like up and down. And I know. They're, oddly. It, I, yeah, yeah. The end is bizarre. It has. Love the end though. It, oh, there's yeah. so many spooky practical effects and weird stuff. And I will also say this. One Halloween, I went as Jack Burton and my girlfriend at the time went as Gracie Law in Chicago, Illinois. And I went to a 7-Eleven and she was with me and a random guy just like was like, Jack Burton, Gracie Law. Yes, yes, yes. And just like pointed at us and then like walked away. And I was like, all right. Like there's a, <laughs> like there's a, the people who love Big Trouble in Little China love Big Trouble in yeah. Little China. It means a lot to them. If nothing else, it is a very unique movie. It is not a movie that you can say is, oh, this is derivative of this, or it is, I mean, obviously it has influences of, you know, he loved kung fu movies and things like that, but it's not. It is not just a, a Honestly, it feels more like a comic book than most comic yes. book movies. Uh, same thing. The producers, the wheels were turning. This could work. This was not exactly how it works, but this could work. Yeah. Um, John Carpenter's failures have launched more success <laughs> stories than anything else in Hollywood. <laughs> but very fitting because we're getting to the last movie of what we are considering his rise. Yeah. Because even though Big Trouble is another one of his mega cult classics, they still print T-shirts they still have posters. They still make Big Trouble, Little China toys. I would say it's kind of the end of his rise. And that leads into the 1987 film, which we're going to call The End of the Rise. <laughs> because they don't make t-shirts as much. Not as much, but they right. do. They do. They do. It is a 1987 movie called Prince of Darkness. I love this movie. <laughs> See, I, this is your Big Trouble, Little this, China. No, no, but, no. no. <laughs> this is this is my star, man. I didn't say anything negative uh, about Big Trouble. Oh, that's fair. That's I was fair. just saying, but like this movie, this movie is the shit. I love this movie. <laughs> the cast is great. Donald yes. Pleasance again. Yes. Victor Wong again. Victor Wong. He gets all of his old Carpenter buddies and all the people he's going to use for the next ones. It's creepy. It's gothic. It's atmospheric. It's a great The poster. last, oh my God, the last shot of the movie, the TV shot, just that hand mm. waving in silhouette oh. outside of the fucking church. I wrote an entire play that was super weird. And I was super high yes. just so I could rip that off, but also at the same time have commentary about how it's ripping off this underseen, underrated movie. And then the other dude who's doing the newscast goes, well, it's underseen, but it's pretty <laughs> rated. Let's be honest. It's Prince of Darkness. It's not his best. But I love this movie. Everybody makes a huge deal about Alice Cooper being in it. He's in it for like eight minutes total. <laughs> he has no lines. He plays a homeless guy. He just showed up in his regular outfit. But like... This movie is fucking great. Yes. If no one had ever seen Prince of Darkness, what would you say Prince of Darkness is about? Just uh, 90 minutes. <laughs> that is correct. Ching. Um, no, this is the problem. It's <laughs> This is my problem. This is the problem. <laughs> it's, it is a horror film. Yes. About he the goes devil. Back to horror. It's a horror film, low budget. They find the devil in a weird lantern in the church basement as you do as you do 
and it's a portal to hell, which also means the devil can come out. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> but it's weirder than that. It's like somebody survived this, and they were making like a biopic about the experience. It's super creepy. The dream sequences are creepy, but it's like, this is not a straightforward hell movie. It's yes. not straightforward at all because they were just mirrors on every part of the set just covered in cocaine probably. It's literally a fascinating movie because you watch it and there's like parts that don't fit at all and the parts that seemingly fit less than those, those work the best. Yeah. It's a wild movie. It's a wild movie. He knew what he wanted to do, but I don't think it was enough to fill a feature. So there's a lot of stuff that's kind of awkward out of place, but all the stuff that works and fits... It's fantastic. I agree. It's crazy. The thing that in Prince of Darkness, I remember watching it, and I remember as I was watching it, I didn't see it as a kid. I saw it recently, and you're right. I love that he goes back to making horror. I love that he goes back to making crazy shit. It's produced by Larry Franco, Larry J. Franco, who produced Big Trouble and, I mean, had been kind of his guy. Something I wanted to bring up because I was Googling this while I was watching it the last time. It is executive produced by Jose Menendez of Caralco Pictures. <laughs> His kids would blow him away with shotguns later. But Jose Menendez was kind of a big deal. Caralco Pictures was a big deal. If you bought a Ninja Turtles thing or you bought a copy of a John Carpenter movie in the 80s. It was probably released by Caralco Pictures, and you probably gave money to Jose Menendez. I just wanted to bring that up. A little side weird subject, but... What a terrible thing to end on. <laughs> we're not ending on that. We're, we've, we've got a wall, but Prince of Darkness... It's also called Prince of Darkness, so it's kind of the perfect time for <laughs> bringing up terrifying murder shit. But yeah, the whole thing where there's a cult with the anti-god and you have to get rid of and like the, the evil is here now. I mean, it's really him. Like, what if the exorcist was on steroids? What if it was the craziest anti-Christ movie anyone had ever made? And John Carpenter said to himself, hold my beer. I'm going to direct this now. And I do not hate Prince of Darkness. I just, <laughs> I was not scared in the entire movie. It's not a scary movie. It's just no. creepy. It's just creepy and wild. It's wild as fuck. And why we have it at the end is because it's 1987. It is his last 80s movie. Or no, that's not true. It's not true. But it is his last movie that would make money at the box office. <laughs> his last real horror movie. It's his last movie that would make money. His last movie that would be a cult one more is a cult classic. There's, a, I'd say two, but yes, he has two more cult classics. But Fred, you're a big memorizer of the Invisible Man guy. <laughs> we just we've Chevy Chase and Daryl Hahn. During this, we haven't mentioned the movie, but I'm pretty sure we've mentioned Escape from L.A. like eight times. No, I know. Yeah, yeah. This. Um, I have entire friendships built in that movie. <laughs> they're weird, yes. but they're sincere. Yes, and people do still. Like Escape from L.A. Yeah. But we will talk about, in a way, maybe his most pervasive cult classic. That will be the first movie in part two next week. An actual Halloween. That's a Halloween sound for Brian to mix in. Very nice. 
I do the best sound effects. All right, but I think that's the end. Any uh, last Prince of Darkness takes? I liked your take on Prince of Darkness. You've kind of swayed me a little bit. Stay away from your fucking mirrors. <laughs> that is, don't look at your mirrors, Brian. Well, Brian can't because he doesn't have a reflection. Yeah, so he can do it all he wants. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Can't get grabbed out of a mirror if you're not in it. That is true. That is true. All right. So it's time. I think we were talking about this. I think we're just going to do one dumpster. Because the next episode is going to be just a dumpster. It's just dumpsters and one blockbuster yeah. wall. This time it's going to be one dumpster and I think three on the wall. What do you think? Yeah. All right. So it's time. Back it up for the dumpster. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, Nick? Fucking Christine. Yeah. I don't give a shit. It's a car... <laughs> fuck the classic car haunted story. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Just... It sucks. Direct Halloween 3 so it's not terrible when you got a fucking weird Irish witch in it. <laughs> That's a fat... You know what? My dumpster, the fog. Look, it almost worked. He tried, but it failed. It was a close, but it is boring as shit. Give it a... Maybe turn it on, see it, fast forward through it. You're gonna want to fast forward. Because the opening sequence is like 15 minutes long, and it is boring as fuck. I remember sitting there and turning to people and just being like, when is this going to end? And they're like, it's the fog rolls. Yeah, the fog. I get it. I've seen it. You, in real time, watch a fog roll in. Wow. Blowing my mind. All right. You saw it in theaters before you were born? No, I saw it at the music box. I saw a 35 millimeter print of the fog and kept turning and looking at people like, why are we here? What is this? But at that time, Stephen King and John Carpenter were friends. And it is very, very possible that John Carpenter explained the plot of The Fog to Stephen King in a way, a different type of storyteller. I'm not going to say a better storyteller, but a different type of storyteller. And he said to himself, interesting. And he waited 15 years. And then he said to himself, all right, now I'm going to write my version of that because you gave me an idea. And his idea is better, and that Andre Braher, The Mist, is a better movie. I would much rather watch that. But just tossing that out there. That's my dumpster. Let's go to the more fun side, though. Let's go to the Blockbuster Film School. Wall. It's time for the Blockbuster Film School Wall! <laughs> What's your number three? On Here's the- my caveat. I'm not Ooh. doing Halloween. Ooh, sexy. It's, it's the goat. It is the goat. That's all you have to say. It's, so, it's amazing. You my know- number three is Prince of Darkness. Ooh, I like I it. I fucking love that dumb movie. <laughs> it's so dumb, so creepy. Also, there's just something about the way it's shot, where it looks old, but at the same time... It looks like it was made to look old on purpose. Ooh. It's weird. It looks good. Yeah, like those old Christopher Lee movies kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He likes Dario Argento a lot. Yeah. And that will come back a lot. I do like Prince of Darkness, and I like your pick, but I'm- It's like a real Panavision movie. Mm-hmm. It's like when he was still using the real wide lenses. Good snaps on that. Snaps on that for sure. My three, the other way, I'm going to go with the full-on mega technicolor- Big Trouble in Little China for my number three. It's wild style. If nothing else, just that end sequence for all the weird floating eyeballs. I mean, it's one of those movies where you can watch it, and even if you don't like the plot, 
something interesting is happening. Something wild is happening in it, and it's fun to watch. And I've never shown it to anybody who said, let's turn this off. This is boring. But it is not the greatest of movies, but it is. Yeah, boring is not its big problem. No, boring is not its problem. <laughs> uh, Nick, what's your number two? I'm going Escape from New York. Well, I um, I'm just gonna say I love Escape from New York, and it has affected me in my life in ways that I can't even understand. I maybe began to really distrust the government when I watched that movie as a small kid, and I was like, yeah, fuck the president. I don't know, <laughs> and. The good guy fucks over the president and the world, and you agree with him, and I agree with him. My number two is Starman. Maybe I am a wiener boy romantic, but I love it, and I love that score, and I think it's beautiful, and it is the only John Carpenter movie that I cry when I watch it. Like, it makes me fucking cry. I try not to sometimes, and I cry sometimes like a goddamn asshole just crying like hardcore. I love it. I like that. We movie. all know you're uncomfortable with your emotions. I have no emotions. I've never had emotions before. Am I crying right now? Oh, what is this water coming out of my face? You've been crying for five days. <laughs> my mascara. It's everywhere. Nick, what is your number one? The thing. Yeah. It's the best. It's. It is the fucking best. It makes... People running down a hallway look amazing. It makes a hallway that's empty look terrifying. It makes fucking the dad from Encino Man look like he could be a hero or a villain. You got the guy, diabetes, out there just fucking shit up. Acting his ass off. It has the best sci-fi climax, blood test, whatever the fuck you want to call it, ever. It is also my number one. It is also my number one. And it has the second best horror sci-fi special effect chest-related twist in the history of cinema. I will not take anything away from Alien, but in the This is thing, a different beast. This is the... When I saw it for the first time. Blew my fucking ah, mind. <laughs> screamed. I screamed. I don't know if I was scared or just more amazed. I, ah, like this. So, back when the Sci-Fi Channel was spelled S-C-I-F-I with a hyphen in the middle. Yes. They would just randomly show clips and like montages for the movies on the Sci-Fi Channel that month. And the first time I saw anything from The Thing was... Fucking that asshole's head on the top of the fucking heating duct in the thing after the chest thing without giving anything away and saying the thing too many times. <laughs> I was like, I have to know what the fuck that is. And I went through what limited resources I had at the internet at the time because we are old and we predate the internet. And so does John Carpenter. But I tracked down the thing after seeing that one image of just like... <laughs> <laughs> and Cardi B in the background going coronavirus so that I could see the whole fucking movie and I've never expected to find what I did and to be so far from disappointment that just like the mere thought of that movie makes me smile. Yes. 
I agree with you a hundred percent. I love that thing so effing much. Yeah. It's it's the thing. And if you've never seen it, you need to pull your head out of your ass yeah. and watch the thing. And Escape from New York and Halloween. And assault on precinct thirteen. Yes, agreed. And I and I would even Big Trouble Little China. If you really like movies and you really want to see a different change in the 80s that would become that kind of 90s pop action, I mean, that's where it comes from. Call me Snake. <laughs> so that's sorry. I just Snake Plissken popped into my head real quick. So many Kurt Russell movies. So much Kurt Russell. So much amazing Kurt Russell. Well, I had a grand old time. That is part one. We are coming back with part two, the fall slash... The slide, the slide down the into slide something John different. John Carpenter <laughs> yes. and the swing up. Yes, into full amazing skullet mode where he becomes an amazing musician. I mean, he's already an amazing musician, but... A Tory musician who doesn't even play the lead on the songs he wrote. I will tell you, it's almost going to be, in a certain way, a more fun episode because it is the fall, but it is also... It's not like John Carpenter is dead. He is still rocking and rolling. He actually just had the Lakers just won the um, yeah Super Bowl, <laughs> the World Championship, the NBA. What's champion. it called? The NBA Championship. Yes. That's, yes. Does it have a name? Yes. Shut up, Brian. Um, the Lakers just won the Super Bowl, yeah. so he's a huge basketball fan. Yes. He did a podcast where they were like doing all the Halloween movies, and he's like, "I'm not going to talk about Halloween." He's like, "What do you want to talk about?" I want to talk about fucking PlayStation. I want to talk about the Lakers. Lakers <laughs> yeah. look great this year. They, they and the whole yeah, podcast. They have LeBron, yeah. Well, the this team was a, that has LeBron is this good. This was a few years ago before <laughs> they had LeBron, but he just spent the whole podcast talking about the Lakers. I was like, I don't mind listening to this, but I really was hoping you talk about Halloween because I because I listened to a whole fucking podcast I didn't like because they promised you were going to be on it. <laughs> Oh my, oh my. Well, team, on that Lakers note, that is the end of this week's amazing John Carpenter episode for Blockbuster Film School. Join us next week for part two. Tell your friends. Electric subscribe. Group. Please do. Like. We have a Patreon if you want to throw us a couple bucks. If you want to follow us on Instagram, if you want to follow us on Facebook, those are all lovely ideas, particularly Instagram. DJ Nick does an amazing job. With the Instagram. Not the DJ here, though. Uh, but that's your uh, your code name. Mr. Nicholas Souter runs our Instagram. It's a really fabulous time. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite Instagrams in the world. And uh, Brian Taps, Super Producer Brian Taps, as always, crushing it. Amazing theme. I love it. I maybe want to just keep it forever. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I'm Alex Bonner, Nicholas Souter, Vampire Taps. We love you guys. Tell your friends. We're going to keep doing the show, well, until we get sued. I think that's really, that's uh, that's how it goes. But yeah. we'll see you guys. We love you. Do drugs. Have a grand old time. Call me Snake. Obey. Consume. Procreate.